Welcome to the I'm Assuming podcast with Ija Mohan and today I have uh, Mr. Azif Mustafa. Hey, hey. Uh, Azif, I, I'm the, I think I met you courtesy of uh, Frost and Sullivan Ooh. back uh, in Iskandar actually, oh, in, in yeah. down south in Iskandar. Yes, yes. There was a, I think there, were, there was a disruptive ideas session right. where i think i was uh, i was sharing a little bit you were a speaker and yeah. and uh, yeah and at that point you were with uh, yayasan innovasi malaysia yayasan innovasi that's right you were heading yayasan innovasi malaysia yep at that point yeah uh, and i think we just connected and in a way i think we did some merchandising with your team yeah, yeah. In, a, in a small way um, so yayasan uh, if you don't mind me jumping into it right sure um, i think one of the things uh I know you're not so active or you claim you're not so active on social media <laughs> but over the years um, what little I have observed is you are very big on um, and please correct me if I'm wrong lah, you're very big on uh, motivating individuals from or from a very productive point of view lah. you know it's not just that Tony Robbins you can do it yeah, 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 kind of deal it seems to be more uh, focused in terms of uh, again, uh, this is my assumption, <laughs> as the show is called, I'm assuming. It's my assumption based on what I'm looking at it. Um, and when you agreed, uh, before I reached out to you, I also kind of did a little bit of research on LinkedIn and saying, uh, you know, what you were working on. And I didn't even know you you had, you know, years in MDAC before okay. uh, Yayasa Innovasi, right? Yep. Um, so maybe you want to kind of tell, uh, share a little bit on is my observation correct in the sense that's that's very interesting observation actually uh that kind of personal motivation kind of groove uh was built over the years okay i think it was because i realized that in order to improve the productivity or efficiency whatever you want to call it of any organization it really boils down to how the people in that organization are behaving and how they perform right mm -hmm. so uh, you can't improve any organization uh, or performance if you don't get to the root of it, which is the people. Okay. Uh, and uh, again, over the years, you realize that that's the most important thing. La. I think I'm at a okay. stage of my life that if I can make an impact or a slight improvement on anyone's life, I think that makes it all worthwhile. La. Okay, so um, I think you're... Yeah. I think you're spot on. Um, in in my humble opinion, that there's a tendency for people to look at companies and corporations like things, you know. You and then you realize that uh, every company is basically individuals, right? Uh, exactly. And I think when you realize that internally as well as externally, it makes us better people, uh, What I mean by that is, I think. Uh, you you are very well versed at internally. If you don't take care of your people, your company is just not going to operate well, right? For sure, yeah. Uh, and what I mean externally is if uh, our customers, if if I'm a customer, or uh, and I just talk about, uh, you know, for example, TM or Maxis or DJ or whatnot, and think of them as this big evil corporation and everything, mm -hmm. I'm dissatisfied and treating them like a thing instead of treating them like a group of people trying to achieve something, right? I think it serves me as a customer. I'll be a better human being if I can humanize an organization. Yep. 
and I think it's vice versa lah as the organization also. Of course, of course. In, in my work, of course, we don't try and change the customer's view, uh, because we have no control over them. Right. Really. But the the thing that I have control over now is how we treat our employees. Mm. Uh, and if we don't treat our employees in a humane and in a kind, uh, in a you know, in a way that makes them feel good about themselves and good about the work that they do, mm. uh, there's no way we can project that humane or human face to our customers, right? Mm. So we must internally believe that this is an awesome place to work. Okay. And I'm as I'm treated as a human being, and I'm treat I'm valued for what I do. Okay. And then we can project that outwards towards the customers. So that's kind of my mission right now. Okay. So um. Currently, you you are with Axiata as and you're heading uh, culture transformation, yeah, culture transformation and employee engagement at Cellcom Axiata. Cellcom Axiata. Okay, so I think that's that's uh, very interesting. But before we uh, I ask you about Axiata, right? Um, can we talk a little bit about Yayasan? Because uh, sure. you spent a good amount of time there. Yeah, six years. Uh, so and I think it's one of those uh, agencies where. You know, when I first came across the Asian Simulation and I'm talking to you and interacting with a few members of your team, it felt like a very interesting organization, right? But I, I must confess, I never grasped the, the total objective for what Yayasan Inuasi uh, Malaysia was about, right? And I suspect many other people might have heard of it, but might not really truly understand uh, what was it about. So you were with them for almost four years, four years plus? Six years. Six years. And you were there as I think at CEO during the early yeah, days, yeah. and acting CEO and then CEO, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think you'll be the perfect person to kind of yeah. uh, give a evangelical idea of evangelize YM, right? right? I mean, sure. Uh, sure. Uh, well, they're still around. They still do good work. Um, yeah. I like to say these; those were one of the the highlights of my career. Okay. I mean, I loved it there. I was brought in kind of to set it up. I okay. was one of the first employees. Wow. Uh, and we set up the system. It was from nothing. So we, we had a blank slate and, you know, it was an opportunity to build something uh, great okay. out of nothing, really. Okay. Uh, but the mandate was uh, grassroots innovation. Okay. So innovation, of course, is a very wide subject, mm -hmm. right? Innovation can happen anywhere. Uh, and typically, when we talk about innovation, people think about research houses or mm. you know scientists or whatever. Right. Um, but grassroots innovation is this concept where innovation can happen anywhere, mm. and especially uh, in rural areas or underserved communities. So okay. that was our focus. Okay. Uh, and we kind of modeled it uh, against this organization in India, mm -hmm. uh, uh, headed by Professor Anil Gupta. Okay. Uh, so I actually visited him there uh, once. It was an amazing experience. But anyway, what he does is Which part of India? Uh, Pune. Pune. Okay. So cool. he does a annual innovation walk. Okay. Uh, that covers basically the re most remote areas of India okay. and he walks like wow. hundreds of kilometers <laughs> with scientists and with researchers with him. So they okay. walk from village to village to kind of discover innovation and o over a period it. of time. Yeah, I mean, they take one season in a year and I think it takes a couple of weeks or wow. a month mm -hmm. and they just walk to places where there's no electricity, no running water and they talk to the people there and they kind of discover innovations. Okay. And they've come up with some amazing stuff. Uh, you know, many of it is... Uh, 
traditional medicines mm. and healing and things like this. Mm. And some of them have been patented and made into you know manufactured goods that are being wow. sold. I mean, and these are these are actually ideas or products from these from rural communities. Region, yeah, from the communities, and they help to kind of commercialize it, like. Exactly, and wow. they, uh, you know, they attribute the patents to those people okay so that they have a continuous kind of income instead of exploiting them exactly and okay yeah so okay. that was kind of the model okay and uh you know prof gupta is also a philosopher you know he, okay. he says cool things like uh minds on the margins are not marginal minds <laughs> You know, mm, so hey, people on the deep, yeah, it is deep. So you know, and I I've met him many times, and I, every time I'm just amazed uh, mm. with what he's done. But anyway, so our minister at that time, Iwan uh, uh, Maximus Onkili, mm. YB Maximus Onkili, met him. Okay, and was so impressed and said, you know, we need to do something of this nature. So we modeled against them. Okay, it was the National well, Innovation. What was the organization that he was running called? NIF, National Innovation Foundation of India. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so basically, the concept is there's innovation everywhere. Okay. How can we help people in rural areas or underserved communities mm. get out of you know the the predicament that they're in mm. through innovation? Mm. So we did our own jaja inovasi. We called it. Mm, uh, okay. And we went around the country. Mm. Uh, we didn't walk. Okay, oh, like yeah, Prof did. We don't walk. Come we on. we <laughs> took <laughs> air conditioned four by fours. We stayed in hotels. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we discovered thousands of innovations. Okay, created by people who wanted to make their lives better. Okay, right. Uh, and they did stuff related to their daily lives, like mm. uh, you know how they harvested paddy or how they mm. uh, you know got clean water, mm. uh, or how they generated electricity from streams. So th these were things. Um, if I if I am hearing correctly, these are things that these rural folk take it that uh, this part of this is just what I need to do to survive this part of their daily life yeah. without realizing that. It is an idea that they can potentially monetize exactly. or commercialize, right? Exactly. And it was during this period, I mean, like I said, it was a six-year period that I solidified uh, my view that, you know, human, I mean, I knew human beings are, are precious and pure and all of this. But after having met so many of these innovators, in the kampungs especially, mm. and, you know, I just truly believe that human beings can do anything that mm. they set their minds to because mm. I met like some pachis in, in, in kampungs that people thought were crazy mm. you know these are the guys on the margins of the kampung kan, mm. that people don't talk to because you know don't go to this pachis house because he's nuts he never leaves his house <laughs> right? because he's in this workshop I mean he built his own man cave in okay. his little hut and he builds stuff and okay. he, he, you know he's so passionate about what he does he doesn't go out he doesn't go to weddings and he doesn't mm. talk to the yeah, people at the surau <laughs> right? I can really yeah, we love doing what we do and yeah. so, so we found so many people like that okay. and, and so many of them have told me this is the first time anyone has validated anything that they've done Okay. They felt that they were they they themselves believed that mm. they were on the margins. Okay. They believed they could never become mainstream. Mm. They don't like talking to people. But right. we found this one Pachi, uh, and he became like an ambassador for us. Right. Mm. He was the one manning our booths when we did uh, exhibitions. Wow. He's the one training kids. Mm. Uh, he had this. His innovation was, you know, the kompang right. that the Malays play during mm. weddings and all yeah. this. It typically has a, a cow hide or, yeah. a, or a kambing skin on right. it, right? 
to, to make the sound. So he took x-rays mm. that he had lying around mm. and, he, and he put it on the frame okay. and it made, he said, a decent sound. And he's a, a, a kompang teacher. Lah. Okay. So he set up a troupe in his kampong, mm. reskinned all of his drums using x-rays, okay. which were free. You okay. know. Uh, and he, you know, this concept is now across the country. People use it already because... Uh, you know, cow hides or kambing skins are so expensive. And really? People yeah. don't have access to it. Yeah. Wow. But now they actually use this free stuff that they get from hospitals or whoever donates to them. Uh. And that, you know, all of us have x rays lying under our beds anyway, mm. right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know I where mean, the put it's so big. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to think about those, so it's always hidden somewhere. Yeah. Uh. And it's so big, it doesn't fit on a, on a bookshelf. Yes, yes. So it's under the bed somewhere. So he's done that, and, and we've, we've actually sort of commercialized it okay uh, and you know we, we that means he, he how do you commercialize something like that in the sense that there's like I have x-rays right? right Right. how do I now fit into this ecosystem yeah. so that's the kind of the creative stuff that we had to come up with uh, you know people would send it to him I mean the, the simplest way is because there is a technique involved yes, and because there imagine, are yeah. some specialized tools that he created okay. uh, he's able to do it more efficiently and quicker mm, and more mm, and better than you yeah. could do it yourself yeah. so people send it to him he makes a kind of a living out of reskinning and sending it back to people but we also created like um, souvenir compounds mm. so you had uh, x-ray taken yeah. and for whatever reason you want to commemorate that <laughs> no no I mean right? you know I have a uh, I'm a little bit of a salesman right and my merchandising brain straight away goes to yeah. yeah, like so, you know, so you I, can I have actually this surgery, order something, this right? Yeah, you can order it. You have a <laughs> miniature kompang frame, and your actual X-ray is on it, and you hang yeah. it on a wall. Yeah, and, and then if works. you have a display, you just put an LED light behind it, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can switch so on. So we had many crazy stuff like that. But anyway, it was an awesome experience for me. Okay. I, I loved okay. what we did. We was a very young team. It was a small agency. Okay, uh, but it was a government agency. So okay. uh, as CEO, I reported to the Minister of Science. Okay. Uh, and the Minister of Science is the uh, chairman of the Board of Trustees. Okay. Right? So it was a, it's a serious organization. Okay. Uh, and when you say the chairman of the Board of Trustees, that means, uh, sorry, my phone is ringing for no reason. Uh, let me put my phone on silent. This is, you see, I should be These ahead of things <laughs> that you learn when you run oh, a podcast. Uh, okay. So, okay, so, um, sorry. So, when you say um, the Board of Trustees, um, that means that there is a, a trust set up for this. Yeah. And when, when, when I hear uh, something like the trust, I'm not very well versed, so you have to correct me here. Um, that means that there's a fund set up to, right. and the trustees kind of approve the, the plans by the agency. Mm -hmm. uh, so, what would be, so my, actually, what I wanted to ask you was that, Something like this, right? Um, you know, I mean, the word innovation is thrown around a lot, but I think um, it is hard to quantify trying to go out and getting the rural folk to... It's such a difficult thing to quantify, exactly. right? So yeah. how do you set KPIs for yourself in yeah. that sense? I mean, that's, so new? that's always been the challenge, but we've had, like I said, a board of trustees, uh, and these are, you know, you had really experienced guys in okay. there, you know, at, uh, professors and tansries and 
uh, CEOs of large organizations. So because it was formed by the government and uh, Prime Minister at the time was actually the patron. Okay. So we could, you know, galvanize captains of industry to help us as well. Okay. So, uh, but it was set up as a as a trust, uh, and government gave us a seed funds. Okay. Uh, and a matching grant. So what what okay. it means is if he manages to raise any sort of funds mm. through donations or contributions or whatever, the okay. government will match it dollar to dollar. And the the match comes as a grant or comes yeah. as okay. It's so okay, so that's if cool. I raise a million from uh, corporations, okay, the government will then match another. So uh, the corporations okay. million might be a loan, but the government's part would be a grant. Do no, no, uh, the, the whoever gives us has to give it as a donation. To the yayasan. Ah, uh, okay. So anyone participating in those programs mm -hmm. had to come in as a as, uh, a, as a donation, as yeah, a grant, so yeah, to speak, and yeah. the government also matched. Also matched whatever. That oh, grant. that's actually very interesting. So it was an interesting model. It was quite difficult. I'll tell you why. Because the uh, the industry sees uh, innovation development as the government's job. The mm. industry says, "I do my own innovation. I fund my own labs and mm. all that. So I've mm. done my part." Mm. But this grassroots thing mm. you know it's you know you can't get us to fund it this is okay. something that the government so so in their minds this is a logically it's like building roads or mm. you know, building schools mm. you don't ask the, the industry so when they do schools. this they, they almost look at it as a CSR yeah. initiative yes. rather than something to so build so that's one of the struggles I've always had while I was there mm. um, but you know it, it's interesting uh, I think it's needed still mm. Uh, although I don't know YBKJ's uh, views on this as he's Minister of uh, Science, Technology, Innovation now. Mm. Uh, he's been active. I've seen him, mm. you know, at YIM events and all of that. So I hope, you know, things are moving forward. I'm actually interviewing him. Wow. At, uh, YBKJ, <laughs> uh, early December. Okay. Uh, there's a conference by ISPIM. ISPIM is the International Society for Professional Innovation Management. So really, I'm a yeah. member and I've spoken at a couple of the events. So they asked okay. me to host the Malaysian leg of a 24-hour innovation marathon. So they're going to wow. start in Japan mm. uh, for one hour. Then they go into China and we are the third stop in Malaysia. Okay. And it'll go for 24 stops around the country. So 23 it's stops. It's a non-stop digital, yeah, digital online journey. People can tune in to the... 24 hours straight. Wow. So I'm going to host one hour on the 7th of December. Wow, that's uh, soon. And yeah... Uh, and YBKJ just just accepted my invitation. Okay. So after Malaysia is going to go to uh, Thailand and then that region. Is it just going to be you and KJ at the or do you have other people? One hour I have also Dr. Rezal Ahmad, who's the CEO of Nano Malaysia. So okay. Nano Malaysia is a, is an agency developing nanotechnology. Wow. Uh, very okay. innovative stuff that they're doing as well. So yeah, that's kind of my life. Outside of Cellcom, I'm still in okay. the innovation space. I mean, KJ is a, is a very interesting person. Mm. Uh, I have a personal story as well in the sense that uh, I'm not sure you know this, but I'm not Malaysian, right? So I was actually, my mom's Malaysian, mm. uh, wife's Malaysian, kid's Malaysian, but uh, I was born in India. Right. Uh, we came here and I was not able to get uh, citizenship or PR. It was too much uh, red tape. And I was on Twitter and right. I, I met KG at a, at a Twitter event and I actually tweeted him after that or before that uh, and saying that, hey man, you know, I'm, I'm as Malaysian as they come and I'm not able to get my PR started. Oh, so he actually responded, got oh, wow. his PA involved 
and actually wrote a letter of <laughs> support yourself. to kind of get the whole thing moving. Wow. And uh, I ended up getting PR uh, after a while. Wow. Of course, there was... I, I never actually <laughs> met him personally sure. or his team. But just by... You know, I sent my dossier to them. They reviewed it. Okay, lah, they can help to support, blah, blah. It was still a two-year process. But right. it kind of happened, right? So, goodness. I, I always see... Uh, uh, when it comes to politicians, you hear all kinds of stories. Lah. But for me, it's how effective are you, right? If yeah, you say you're going to do something, can you do it? Are you effective? He seems like a very smart person. I, I don't know him personally, but he seems like a very smart person. Uh, I, I tend to discount uh, politicians in what they say in the surface. Lah. Because, you know, you got to do by poli- right. uh, uh, party lines and all that. But he seems like one of those characters that's yeah, very effective. Genuine and... Uh, and, and the type that well. if he were to put his mind to something, I would imagine he can probably get, get it, it done. done. Yeah, right? yeah, uh, yeah. Discounting I, all the political... <laughs> he was the uh, only minister that uh, tweeted me Wow. So uh, this is an interesting story. So okay. one day, um, so we got Twitter stories on KJ. Okay. So anyway, uh, there was this lady who kept contacting him and wanted to meet me. Okay. Right, uh, for some reason, and of course, I mean, not to be rude, but as a CEO, you know, you have a lot of things to do, right, Correct. on your plate. So mm. if somebody is unscheduled, it's very unlikely that I'd, mm. I'd meet him right. or her, right? So I said, I, I told my guys, I mean, she had came without an appointment. Okay. So I said, boleh lah, you know, mm. I'm kind of busy. Mm. But then one of my guys said, boss, you know, she's uh, quite old. She's an mm. elderly lady. She's an mm. elderly lady and she's here already. Mm. I said, so when I heard that, I said, okay lah, you know, mm. give her mm. face lah. Mm. I'll, I'll give her 10 minutes. So mm. this nice old lady came and we ended up talking for an hour wow. and she had so many ideas so she had she's running this NGO and she had so many things to do I, I thought it's an amazing lady so mm. I took a photo with her mm. uh, and I posted it mm. uh, on Instagram and at that time my Instagram was, was kind of tied to Twitter I'm not a Twitter guy okay. so I'm not on okay. Twitter so, but it was posted okay. it was reposted by the KSU of Mosti okay. and said uh, Dr. Rama is such a sweet lady uh. I didn't know who she was right <laughs> <laughs> and then KJ reposted said hey that's my mom <laughs> oh wow <laughs> so I'm glad I didn't push her away you know what I'm saying but I I totally didn't know it was his mom until mm. he tweeted he said hey it's my mom I said wow <laughs> you know that's that's interesting I think um, and that's one thing I really appreciate about Malaysian culture right there's this we have this uh, you know this adat of you know being polite to elders of yeah. You know, there's, there's a, I would dare say that there is a, a string of kindness that, you know, uh, is there. La. Whether we choose to acknowledge it or choose to ignore right. it. But I think society as such, by default, there's this, you know, hey, respect your elders, right? True. Which you don't necessarily see uh, in other parts of the world. In the West, probably uh, not. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, people yeah. freak out. They don't. They don't understand that. We were just watching uh, something on on Instagram last night. Mm. You know, one of these things that come in your feed, right? Mm. Oh, the the viral stuff. So it was this kid. He was a he was an American Muslim, mm. American Arab. So he wanted to prank his friends, right? There was okay. these teenagers. They were just mm. hanging out, playing games in their room, and one guy said, "I'm going to prank my friends." Okay. So he pretended to speak to his mom. Mm. He said, "Mom, don't." 
Don't call me at this time, no. Mm. You know, I don't want to talk to you. Mm. Go away. Mm. So his friends turned around, started throwing stuff at him. Why are you mm. talking to your mom like like yeah. this? Yeah. You know, how can you just yeah. then one of them actually stood up and beat him up and mm. said, "How can you disrespect <laughs> your mother?" So yeah, it was funny. So I showed that to my son. Obviously, I said, "You know, hey, dude." <laughs> so the, how old is your son? Twelve. Does he relate? Does he relate? Of course. To- He totally saw it. I mean, we didn't even tell him it was a prank. He said, "You know what is he doing?" Then when the guy stood up, he said, "Oh, he they got pranked," and you know, but he understood immediately that you you don't disrespect anyone's mother, right? You don't. Know, when, when I was in college many many years ago, I heard um, uh, one of my mother's friends telling her a story mm-hmm. um, where she, her friend lives in the UK, I believe, and was telling a story of how. Uh, in the UK, she was at her, visiting a friend in the UK, um, and they were in the house, and there was the doorbell rang. Right. So because uh, she was talking to a friend, the son actually went to the door to answer the door, and apparently it was uh, somebody looking for a donation, right? Uh, and you know, usually when people are, even if somebody comes and asks for a donation now, because we're engaged with this, we're like, hey. No lah, no, no, no. Because your mind is focused exactly. on something else, yeah. right? So she was focused on the conversation. The mother said, "No, no, tell them to go away, right?" And the son was very unhappy about it, right? And he actually called the mom uh, an expletive, lah, saying, "Oh, you stingy b-word," right? right? To the mother, right? So the friend here was just like shocked, didn't say anything, and then her friend was just like, "Oh, this boy, yeah, yeah. right." And and life goes on. So when they were telling their story to my mother, I was just listening. I was just like. What you can say that yeah, exactly and live yeah, exactly <laughs> and walk exactly. So th- this idea of and that is when I think I first realized that oh you know we don't treat parents and elderly the same way everywhere in the world right. Yeah uh, yeah yeah. I just wrote about Khabib. Are you a MMA fan? Yeah yeah. 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 So you know I obviously you no, know not a big wants- fan but I definitely know him like I follow so. Um, one of the things that the West was just freaked out about, you know, when he won against Conor a few years mm. ago, mm. Uh, at the post, you know, he he jumped over the mm. the thing and he right. beat up Conor's teammates and all that. He created this riot and all that. So at the post fight press conference, he he apologized. He said, mm. you know, this was not my best side. Mm. So as he uh, got up to leave, he said, you know what, uh, I'm sorry again, but you know what, I'm gonna go home and my dad's gonna smash me. <laughs> my dad's gonna kill me. Is it? I don't know what to say, but he's gonna. And he was 30 years old, probably at that mm. world champion. Yeah. He had the belt around his yeah. waist. Yeah. He's at the top of his game, right? Yeah. And he goes, "My dad's gonna kill me." Yeah. People in the West can't. Re- we can relate to that yeah. because you know, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> even if we have five kids, yeah. you know, we still respect our dad. So yeah. he put that out. And what I wrote about was he just beat Justin Gaethje and he retired. Mm. Yes. Right. And everybody saw that video of him crying, like mm. breaking down in the middle of of the ring of the octagon. And I said, I, I put out a video. I said, how many stereotypes or assumptions mm. 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 did Khabib break down mm. just by being honest and being, you know, authentic? Vulnerable, yeah. Being vulnerable, himself, like, yeah. Being himself. Yeah. So he missed his dad. Had passed away a couple yeah. of months ago uh, because of COVID. And this was the first fight that he did without his dad by mm. his side. Well, you, well, when he fought in the US, the dad didn't get a visa, so mm. <laughs> he mm. never had his dad mm. by his side. But mm. the last fight, you know, in Abu Dhabi, the mm. dad was there, and so anyway, he just broke down, right? Mm. And all of these assumptions of 
Russians being mean or mm. heartless mm. or you know tough guys not mm. boys can't cry mm. this sort of stuff yeah you know with that sort of display of emotion he just broke down those stereotypes and so I you know, actually one of the this is one of the tough ones lah because um, stereotypes right is I was having a conversation just the other day with uh, the editor of Chili Sauce uh, Chuck Chuck on Lau, right? And we were talking about stereotypes, right? And, you know, at, at what point does the stereotype, you know, go into discrimination? That means, you know, when you, you have a stereotype about someone, but they, if it's a man, then you are you being sexist by having stereotypes mm. on men and women? Mm. Or if it is against, if it is a stereotype of, you know, Indians, Chinese, Malays, you know, when are you a racist versus a stereotype, right? So it's one of those things I feel it's incredibly. Uh, I think tricky to navigate. I don't think we can't have the conversation, but it is very hard to have the conversation without it being misconstrued as exactly. you're going left and right. You it's, know? it's tough, yeah. But these are definitely one of the hard conversations we need to have. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I showed the video to my son again, mm, mm, 12 years mm. old. I said, you know, because he is uh, also very vulnerable and, you know, he, he lets out his emotion. Mm, mm. And sometimes he feels bad about it. He said, I'm 12 years old, I'm a mm. boy, but I cry. Mm. You know, and I showed him, hey, this is the toughest guy on the planet, man. Mm. He's Khabib, right? Mm, mm, <laughs> he mm. beats everybody up and he cries, yeah. you know. So yeah. it's, it's not something that you need to be ashamed of, but it has to be appropriate and, you yeah. Know, not just for no reason lah. Yeah, I mean that is the uh, 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 a tough one lah. You know, uh, you know the, the 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 typical one is what uh, boys or men don't yeah, cry, right? Exactly. That is the number one stereotype. Exactly. Um, and I think when it comes to, I think especially our parents lah. Mm. I think yeah, uh, you it, emotions is at peak lah. Whatever it is, right? You know, I've I've I I can't lie. I, I've I've had times when I've disagreed and argued with my mother. And I cannot sleep, you know. I, I literally, uh, I cannot sleep. Even my wife will look at me. I'll be on my phone and, you know, and in bed, right? I'll be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I yeah. didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to say that. And I'm like, it's my so mom. bad, right? Because yeah. it's that, because you, ca I cannot, you know, my mom might be 100% wrong and I might be 100% <laughs> correct. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter <laughs> if she's wrong or, you know, if I'm right. But I can't believe, oh, yo, I was rude to her, right? Oh, I can't, I can't accept that. And until, uh, you know, my mom kind of says it's okay, I love you, blah blah blah. And you know, you your your, your heart, you know, they say rudder. I don't, I don't know what's the English equivalent to 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 rudder. Subside. So, yeah. Rudder, then, yeah. You know, I I can't sleep. You know, and True. you know, then I ask myself, oh, does this make me a mama's boy, right? Are you a mama's boy if you're so sensitive to your mother's feelings? Then I'm like, if that's what it means, I like, I have no issue being yeah, a mama's yeah, boy. I'll put that on a t-shirt, right? <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll wear it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if that's what it means, I say, okay, I have no issues being called a mama's boy if it means that I care what my mother thinks or exactly. how she feels, right? And I think we can't have that kind of conversation publicly, you know? Because even when you're with a group of friends, whether you're playing any sports, playing football or whatnot, It's all about oh, you gotta be a man. Hey, you don't be so far, you know. Yeah, and it's a front, you know. It's such a, it's such a <laughs> so much disingenuous front. Did uh, you play any sports? Nowadays? I used to play a lot of football, yeah. um, but not recently, like, Especially not in the past couple of years, lah. Like. 
I have actually, uh, in these older years of okay. mine, have gotten into more organized sports. So okay. I've played basketball almost all my life. I mean, okay. since college. Mm. Uh, but lately, I've been playing organized ball. So there, okay. we have a team. Uh, at least what for is the organized past five ball? Years. Well, you play in tournaments. Okay. So even at my age, uh, I play in you know these uh, leagues. Okay. So it's an it's organized as referees. Everybody has a jersey on. Okay. Uh, and it. It, that sense of you know brotherhood or whatever you want to call it you want to call it macho or whatever mm, mm. it's it's just amazing mm. so that gives me my high mm. i mean it's just once a week typically one right. game over the weekend one practice session at night mm. uh, but i just want to talk to you about stereotypes right mm. so in one game i was having probably one of the best games i mean i'm not a, a super player but okay. i can score so every <laughs> every game i can score right so uh, during this one particular game we had somehow lots of people watching typically okay. we don't but mm. once a couple of our guys brought mm. friends and they brought and friends. this is not like office or something this is uh, yeah, independent this is in the, we have uh, teams from all over the country okay so well, we've had we had this league on and it's an amateur league yeah it's definitely okay. an amateur okay. league uh, you can't have people who play for the country on your team mm. things okay. like that that's all one right. of the rules <laughs> so <laughs> to keep it kind of uh, you know in, in level terms of playing age there's, there's anyway a... it's open there, there okay. was there is a veterans category sometimes okay. but in this particular tournament there, uh, we didn't play in the veterans category okay. because not many of my teammates are my age <laughs> <laughs> so okay. we play in an open category but okay. there are uh, divisions mm. we mm. played in division 2 uh, or, or division 3 that year I'm not sure but they, I mean the people in the top leagues the, mm. the first division are very very good and we mm. can't compete with them so anyway in this particular game there was a, a loose ball and I was breaking free all alone going towards the basket mm. and I made the basket so wow. it was amazing mm. But after the game, somebody shared a video because there was people uh, capturing it. Mm. So there was a video of me making this basket and it was like, this is the highlight of my life. Mm. But you can hear the girl uh, who was taking the video mm. go, Go Pachi! <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, come on! Damn! <laughs> and this video is still pulled out every time somebody talks about age you know in whatever basketball group I'm in okay. suddenly you talk about age this video comes out again it's still alive go Pachi like, okay lah I've accepted it I'm 50 plus now I've, okay. I'm a Pachi so okay. you know, you know Azim, I, I must tell you right uh, I, I am in my 30s and I think the minute I turned 30 right I accepted the fact that <laughs> I accepted my uncle's status, right? In the sense that it's okay. I'm big. I I look like an old man. I look like an old man when I was in my twenties, lah. So I was like, I accepted, and then it was very entertaining to see my friends who are like the same age try to battle this idea of don't call me uncle, you know? Because see, our Asian culture also, right? Any young kid looks at you if the minute they think you're a little bit older, it is uncle for sure. You know, we, we, we don't go to the abang so much. La. It's straight away to uncle, right? <laughs> so even when we play football, like just for fun in the padang, yeah. the small kids there, kick the ball. To, uh, uncle pass the ball. <laughs> and then my, my friends, they're like, freak Ugh! out. Yeah. You know, you know the, 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 they call me an uncle, right? God damn it. So, but for me, I was like, I accept it. Like, it's okay. You know, I, I accept my uncle's status. I, I'm okay with it. Yeah, but it's very, uh, I find it very entertaining to see my friends. Still, well, I mean, I'm, still I'm, I'm probably one of those guys who battled it for a while okay. but uh, <laughs> recently you know I married off my son it, 
eldest son uh, wow. recently, just uh, in August. Okay. Uh, I wrote an article about that that became <laughs> I became quite famous in the LinkedIn uh, circle. Really? Because yeah? people actually I titled it how I project manage the wedding of the year. So it became a project <laughs> management thing, right? Okay. So the, so the whole article was about going through the project management steps. Right. Okay. Because, true story, we only had two weeks mm. notice wow. from the time he told us, mom, dad, I'm getting married. Wow. To, to the actual reception, 14 wow. days. So I pulled off that. But you knew days. the girl he's getting married. No. Well, he, <laughs> he introduced. Smoke screen. Oh man. <laughs> I mean, he said he's going to bring a friend over okay. for dinner. Okay. okay. I mean, he's brought a few over okay. the years, and okay. he's 28 years old, so he's not okay. not a kid. So okay. No, I would have never guessed you have a 28 year old bring your, kid. Bring your bring your friend. Okay. So the friend came. <laughs> And after dinner, over coffee, he goes like, you know, mom, dad, we have a date. He says, that's all he said. We have a date. Mm. He said, yeah, aren't you having a date now at uh. my expense <laughs> coming to my house? He said, no, not that kind of date. Mm. You know, we went to the mosque near my house, he said, mm. and we talked to the imam mm. and he gave us a date. And there's only two reasons you go to the imam for a date. Lah. Mm. Either you're going to get married or you get circumcised. I'm pretty <laughs> sure this boy was circumcised <laughs> when he was young. So... <laughs> when he's still a kid oh god so he got a date I said when's the date the date is 27th he said of August mm. he came to us on the 15th of August this so 12 this days yeah just a few months back wow so he gave us 12 days notice for his nikah which mm. is the solemnization mm. ceremony at the mosque mm. so I go when's the reception mm. and millennial being him he's like well, don't need lah reception you know wajib you know the mandatory thing is to get the nikah to mm. get married mm. so I'm just gonna get married he, mm. he didn't prepare for anything mm. and I'm like you know I got lots of friends hello I, <laughs> you're the first marriage among my children we're going to have yeah, <laughs> we are going to have a wedding party mm. but thankfully because of MCO lah mm. you know uh, we had a very small affair 150 people at okay. my house in our front yard so it wasn't a big thing lah okay. luckily because you know lah Malaysian weddings yeah typical yeah, yeah. is a thousand people mm. nowadays mm. you know mm. a thousand people is normal mm. I've heard of them Because it's too big now, breaking weddings over days, right? Yeah, groom side, bride oh side. Oh my goodness! No, no yeah, yeah. That, that's normal as well. Groom side, bride side, but the the number of guests yeah. is just, yeah. and there's no way I could afford a thousand <laughs> men, a thousand so guests wedding lah. Like, yeah. Tak boleh lah. If it's not budgeted, you know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, because of MCO rules, mm. we managed to pull off a very small, intimate wedding in mm. 14 days, and I and I wrote about that. And her I side was also about. okay with. No, yeah, we just came together and we said. Because her family is in in Kelantan, so okay. was, and we actually haven't done it over there yet. And we're okay. going to do that. He's going to arrange that soon. But we just do it over here. No, he, he actually had driven to Kelantan, mm. talked to the girl's uh, father, mm. gotten permission, mm. done all of this before he talked to us. So I'm like, uh, you know. <laughs> so okay, let me ask you something, right? <laughs> if if listening to this story, um, I feel it actually shows a lot of maturity and pragmatism on your sunset right there and I think credit is to you guys for bringing him up like that right but w- as a parent also for him to spring that to you <laughs> I know you not check it so like, I can I can believe that right um, but h- why do you think uh, or you no, know, why do you think he's he was so chill about it in the sense that you know yeah two weeks notice to my dad that's fine that's more than enough <laughs> 
Yeah, it was kind of a, a spur of the moment decision on his side as well, I guess. Okay. Uh, I think it was even done while he was driving to Kelantan mm. <laughs> while he was there with mm. the dad. Maybe they 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 decided kind of, you know, earlier is better, mm. which which I respect. Yeah. As soon as he got that decision and he made the arrangements, he didn't want to kind of burden us with anything, so mm. he did the arrangements with the imam and the mosque and all that himself. Uh, so yeah, I think he was. Nah, that's like it's very gangster, you know, in the sense that <laughs> he sorted out the important bits and he's like came to you like, I uh, know whatever you guys want to do made, to make right? me happy, you know, whatever you need to do to make it happy, you go ahead lah. But I kind of got the the yeah. whatever needs to be done, I've sorted it out. Yeah, exactly, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, yeah. it shows a lot of, uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of confidence, yeah. you know, where you you're not. Uh, I think he still did the right thing. Like asking for mm. uh, her hand in marriage from her folks, and then also coming and giving you the respect and talking to you as well, but also kind of like, you know, this is the decision that I want for my life. Uh, yeah, very and, rare. And it's very rare. It right? is rare. It is rare, and that has helped my wife and I grow as well. You know, because we have all of these preconceived mm. ideas. You know, mm. oh, we have to do this for a wedding, or you know, our kids are going to go through this and that. But mm. end of the day, you know, when when things come and you know God is the best planner right we can't plan everything yeah, yeah. it comes along what do you do mm. are you going to reject the kid are you mm. going to say don't get married uh, yeah. you know so we had a heart to heart discussion my wife and I as soon as they left we said okay let's figure this out right mm, mm. Uh, and of course she was freaked out I was freaked out and we were both you know what are we going to do but suddenly this project manager inside me mm-hmm. just <laughs> woke up and said okay let's put out a project plan for so six days something you mentioned was very interesting to me that you mentioned the, the fact that uh, it was the first child that's getting married so we're definitely doing something right and and I think it's uh, it's very true um, in, in my own case uh, me and my wife we kind of eloped Right. We didn't run away anywhere, but we just told our families we're not gonna have a wedding. We will get registered. Right. We might throw a party, right? But we are not going through the whole process. And and I think both our families were okay with it. Uh, you know, maybe they just wanted to have it done over. But one of the things that I really one of the key factors why I thought both our sides were okay with it because I had an older sister that got married a couple of years ago, and she had an older brother who also got married. Uh, a couple of years ago so the both families have had their mm. big wedding out of the way right and I think once somebody goes through a wedding and goes through the hassle of a wedding exactly I think parents sometimes secretly tell them never again la. Cukup la. <laughs> you'll, you'll never say it out loud but, but I think in your mind you're like oh why did we do this to ourselves uh, right so in that sense I think both our parents kind of gave the blessing to not make a big hoo-ha no, I'm, I have to be honest. I mean, I was quite relieved that we didn't have to go through because my sister-in-law was saying, you know, you must, you know, count your blessings because we had a year's notice. Mm. And basically, they were was stressed <laughs> for one entire year. <laughs> so now we got it done in two weeks and she's you know, like, we're happy. I, I'll tell you something. I thought I was being very clever and um, I was giving my wife excuses as to why not to get married. You know, I just, I, I, I had a, I injured my leg during football. I had a couple of surgeries and I was like, 
you're using all these things as excuse like and also I was running my own company it was a startup at that point so a lot of uncertainties right and she was like hey you know we're getting older we should settle down i'm like yeah, I was kind of like making it difficult giving her reasons that we should wait right and i was and she was very smart very patient with me and i was like oh you know if you get married you know given the situation blah blah we should not even have a wedding just do a registration you know you you say all those things to put a girl off right and she, you know wife smarter than me like, yeah, right yeah. she was like yeah sure okay and i was like what now you're stuck yeah it's like yeah <laughs> No, no, no wedding. Okay, I'm okay with that. I was like, oh crap! I didn't expect you to say okay, right? <laughs> so in, in in that sense, um, uh, we just got it done like that, lah. So no wedding, no nothing. I think our parents were happy about it, happy and sad because I think, uh, I think parents do want to like share the experience with their relatives, yeah. have all the relatives over, and you know, kind of it's a communal thing, which I think we rob them of. Yeah, uh, but that, I think they got it done with the first kid last, so I'm happy uh, in that sense. Yeah, so for me, we we did and we got the best wedding photographers that we could afford <laughs> and the best videographers, <laughs> and we sent out a notice and saying this is why you weren't invited for my <laughs> for my son's wedding. <laughs> so we shared it with them, but mm. we had a very good excuse, government mandated excuse mm. that we can't mm. invite everyone. Yeah. So Legit. that process also was very interesting to us because it really made us, you know, do we need do we need a thousand people to come? You know? Yeah. Right? So this assumption of what mm. a wedding should be mm. is totally turned upside down nowadays because I thought we had a beautiful wedding. I mean, that's mm, me mm, la, because mm. I was also the wedding planner, la. <laughs> the contractor, <laughs> the the flower arranger. Yeah, that's all me. Little <laughs> bit but I thought it was wonderful. So, no, I, but, I was happy. but okay, that, that's actually, um, if knowing what you know now, uh, would you would you say big lavish weddings are necessary, uh, or what? What would is what is your stand on? Yeah, I, I, I've always known that, you know, people need to stick in their lanes, lah, basically. Mm, mm, you know, mm. if you can afford it, why not? Mm. If you're a multi-millionaire, you want to blow a million bucks on a wedding and mm. invite everybody and make everybody happy, mm. by all means. But if you have to borrow money or, you mm. know, that just makes no sense. Yeah. It make, especially if you put a, a young man, mm. you know, deep yes. in debt, just because out of life yeah, that, your parents mm. want to have a huge wedding and mm. that makes no sense you know mm. to me uh, it's religiously also it's not mandatory mm. it's obviously recommended to have mm. a feast mm. and invite people so that people can know these two are, are lawfully wed mm. you know mm. that's the whole reason mm. uh, and I think we fulfill that need mm. we did a small one we invited some neighbours you know everybody knows now that my yeah. son is married you know one of the things we talked about that we had to have a wedding is we don't want to give an announcement that here's my grandson or granddaughter, right? <laughs> and people are going to say, where's the wedding? <laughs> no, so that's not going to happen. I hear you, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, again, our culture, right? Yeah. Our culture no, actually, I, I think the the Asian culture, Southeast yeah. Asian culture of feeding people very important. Of course. Of, you know, this idea of like, you know, kanduri and all that. Yeah, yes. And I think it's a very, there is a very, uh, how do I say? It's it's almost spiritual, like you know, and I think whether it's it's the Malay culture, the Indian culture, or even the Chinese culture, the act of feeding people is seen as you know okay. some kind of good pahala. Yeah, and yeah, of course, it's, it's good, right? Of course. And and I think that 
is leads to those big lavish weddings because yeah. the idea is hey you want people to come you want right. people to be happy yeah. and eat yeah. and f- you know and feast and all that yeah uh, but yeah you're right people they can people can go overboard lah uh, yeah. if you can afford it exactly why not, why not? Mm. um yes but i really enjoyed that it was smaller that we got to interact with everyone mm. uh you know these big weddings you just go and makan and leave yes. there's really nothing that yeah. you get out of it you meet some friends maybe hopefully you'll mm. be put because in big malay weddings it's just you know free seating right you yeah. come you yeah. sit down whatever is available you yeah. eat and then you leave yeah. so you're lucky to shake the hand of the bride or groom mm. or meet mm. even the the parents mm. um, but you know if it's so big you can't so it's nice to have small weddings where everybody is together and you get to talk but to do people. you think uh, although I must say this I don't see this so much in in Malay weddings right but Um, I think Chinese weddings and to a certain extent even Indian weddings now or maybe I'm talking about my generation lah kan is there's this whole perception and it's a very sensitive topic this whole perception of Dwey uh, Dang uh, Pao right mm. you're giving right and and I think if you want to give you give you, it's genuine that's okay. fine but right now I from what I hear uh, even before I got married is always this idea of oh I got invited to somebody's wedding oh which hotel ah? oh Mandarin ah? oh must give at least 200 ringgit per person <laughs> and suddenly I realized there's this calculation that my generation does ah, where oh if I do it in a nicer hotel the people I invite should also give me more money and the people who are attending also like oh you should give more money because it's a nicer hotel it's a ROI discussion isn't it <laughs> yeah and, and I've listened to people talking and And I it blew my mind that oh you know after the wedding you can actually get uh recover full cost and if your close family members are rich you can even profit <laughs> and suddenly it's a transaction uh you know or you know the the, the smarter younger kids are uh, the wedding is paid for by parents yeah. whatever ang pao they take <laughs> I mean that's such a shame lah I mean honestly before this I didn't I mean weddings are weddings lah you mm. go to weddings but what until you have you arrange one of your own mm. you know uh, the significance of it and the purity of it really m- makes an impact like before mm. it was just you, you attend the wedding you pay yeah. or whatever yeah. but now you know this is my son's wedding right yeah I, yeah and now i understand this the significance and of course it's shouldn't be that transactional mm. or that mm. business like right you want to count yeah. how much money you get how much you put out no but but to be fair to be fair Um, from from you know talking to my mother because I was like hey why is this so transactional mm. because I've heard of uh, even Indian families right they have a logbook of all the weddings they've attended who they've given money to oh. so that when you have uh, when you organize your children's wedding you expect all these people that you gave money to to come back and and to match you know and the funny thing is I have friends my age who practice this Wow. They know who give uh, who who they, yeah, they have given much, money to uh, and how much they can expect to collect. Wow! So if I give fifty bucks, I expect fifty bucks, for example, right? Wow. But to be fair, when I talk to my mom and talk about all that, uh, she tells me like back in the day, weddings. I mean, even now, but back in the day, weddings were expensive, and it is expensive for a family to afford it. So yeah. usually, the community comes together. It's very communal, yeah. And they're like, we give you money so that. 
we help you lah. We we help subsidize nah, or help I, I, you pay for it. I was just gonna it. say. I was just gonna say. I think this is uh, carrying on of that tradition because yes, at, yes. in in our kampung, in my mother-in-law's kampung in Malacca, that's still the way it goes. Right? Yeah. And it, you have a wedding, and mm. you're not expected to give money, but you're yeah. expected to give eggs or flour mm. or brass yeah. or whatever whatever yeah. you can afford right yes. so people bring bawang mm. people bring whatever vegetables and that is totally expected there's yeah. nothing there's no way out of it yeah. so if, if my mother-in-law doesn't have a penny to her name mm. she will do whatever it takes because she mm. said this is expected i have to go because this is so and so's yeah. daughter's wedding yeah you have to do this yeah so I guess nowadays you know we're not going to go and cook and we're not going to bring mm. bawang mm. to somebody's house so I guess you give money lah. Yeah. I think mm. that the you know I think it's a disconnect of a, a couple of generations that that probably we didn't pass on the wisdom enough mm. on why this is taking place. Now it just becomes oh you got wedding ah you expect money lah. Yeah. You know? do a balance sheet right? How many people <sighs> yeah that's oh, man, the shame is, in that yeah. You know it is and again like for me it is not what's happening I think you know the fact that people are giving you know, that's fair if you're genuine you want to give to someone you, you know you want to help them out when they're starting a new life that's fair but it, for me it becomes very odd the expectation and then yeah. they're like oh I expect to give and then I kira kira who gives me what then how am I going to give back and all that so again I don't have an opinion on it I just find it a bit weird when it becomes very transactional but on the other hand I think that's the way uh, that we can pull this off mm. in Malaysia, right? Mm. Yeah, mm. Whether it's Malay, Chinese, or Indian, mm. we can have these big weddings because yeah. The, yeah. the guests kind of pay their own way. Right? Yeah. You, you kind of, like you said, it's a calculation. Lah. If you go to this hotel, you know, my meal's going to cost <laughs> 200 bucks, right? So you kind of pay your own, you you know, know, your own when share. When I, was, when I was younger, out of college, when I first started working, when money was very tight, right? Um, but I think money is always tight all your life, lah. But it's yeah. a degree, right? It changes the, the, the. So for me, when getting an invitation for a wedding, I was like, "Oi, I got no money to." <laughs> like, oh, I can't bring a date. I can't afford to bring a date to this wedding, right? And people say, "Ego hey, plus one, ah. Oh, my girlfriend's not coming for this <laughs> wedding. I can't afford, right? But I think my realization came is when my friends were like, "Oh, if you're going, you this is you must give at least this much." Yeah, I was. Whether bodo or ignorant, I don't know lah. But I was like, oh, you mean people invite you? You don't just go to the wedding, <laughs> ah? You only go if you can pay sort of for your seat, right? I thought that was odd, lah, right? And then I became a king of declining weddings for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I guess in the West that doesn't happen, lah. People don't mm. expect mm. guests to pay, mm. right? Mm. Which is why they don't have wed lavish weddings, perhaps. Right. That's why they don't invite seven, eight hundred people like we do. <laughs> uh, yeah, but. But uh, after having gone through that experience, it was totally changed my perspective hmm, on what a wedding okay. is supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that is something that I would not know yet. As I think that experience as yeah. a parent uh, getting your child married, uh, I definitely saw hints of that in my mom when my mom, after my sister's wedding, she's like, oh, it's over. Like, you know, like it's such a, not the burden of my sister getting married but the but the burden of the whole wedding you know yeah. the, the, the the stress of exactly. wedding and dealing with in-laws oh exactly. god that is a special kind of place to be lah. I tell you what happened after that mm. uh, because of this crazy economy this crazy thing is happening around the world right mm. both my son and his wife mm. lost their jobs 
Oh man. So, you know, they had no way of sustaining just starting off now. Mm, yeah. Both of them don't have jobs. So and they didn't know that bef- before the wedding. Well, I mean, one of them did, but you know, not sure things have happened mm. such. Uh mm. so again, my wife and I had to have this conversation mm. and said, "Hey, you know, we have room in mm. our house. Mm. You know, it's not a huge house, but mm. there's room. Mm. They should move back in." Yeah. And Obviously, you know, when you're newly wed, that's not mm. the first thing that comes yeah. to mind. Like, you don't want yeah. to stay with your mother-in-law, yeah. right? I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> I mean... It's all the stereotypes in yeah, the world. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But uh, they came around because we said, you know, you, you need to restart. And mm. this is, it seems like the way to go. Lah. Mm. You know, mm. her parents mm. are so far away. Uh, and so they moved back in. Mm. And when I... Told some a couple of my friends that they were like, "What? <laughs> you mm, know, mm. he's married. He should, you know, mm. get on with his life. And yeah. why is he moving back in with you?" I'm like, "We mm. we took the again the lesson we learned from the wedding is that you got to roll with the punches, man. Yeah, whatever exactly. happens, yeah. you just have to. Okay, yeah. let's do this. Yeah. So we said, let's do this. So we you know cleaned up a room, mm. uh, moved things out, moved them in, and mm. I tell you, it's been fantastic. Mm. I mean, I've been loving it. It's only been like about a month. Okay. But first time in my life, lah. You know, I've never had a daughter-in-law, obviously. Mm. Uh, somebody comes and serves uh, tea. <laughs> oh, you got and all. I'm like, what? <laughs> what is this? I, nobody knew, you know, this didn't happen before. My daughters have, I have two other daughters. Okay. And they are, you know, <laughs> m- as modern as <laughs> you they expect you to bring yeah. the tea. <laughs> <laughs> and they're both out, off to college anyway, so they're mm. not home. Uh, so it's nice, mm. you know, to have more people in the house. Yeah. Typically, it's just me and the youngest, the 12-year-old, mm. Danish, uh, and my wife. So just the three of us. But now with them, there's mm. five of us now, and we're having fun. There's and you're also to do, making you know. up for the fact that you didn't really know her before. Exactly. And now it's a crash course to get to know each other. <laughs> it's been nice, I tell you. It, it's totally a new, new experience for me. Mm. Uh, but I'm thankful that both my wife and I have, you know, been able to adapt and been able mm. to, like I said, roll with the punches. Yeah. I, that's actually, the, biggest the, lesson the idea of adapting, I think that's a very understated or undervalued idea, right? That when something happens, instead of, Oh my God! How are oh we can't yeah. do that? You just say, like, okay, well, you move in, you you know you get back on your feet, and then ideally you wanna move out again. That's fine, lah. When you are ready, move out, right? Instead of like making a big hoopla and exactly, you know. I've always you know throughout my career, I've I was just calculating this. It's been over twenty five years <laughs> I, since I started work, right? So I probably hired hundreds of people, okay. maybe more, mm. uh, and. Now I realize that, you know, qualifications never really meant much lah, in mm. terms of your field of study, mm. right? I don't care lah, if you studied mechanics mm. or, you know, quantum physics or whatever, mm. but this is the job at hand. Right. How, how are you going to do it? So I think adaptability has always been high on, on my kind of list of priorities okay. mm. when I evaluate people. Okay. Are you able to change? Are you able to adapt? Are you able to, you know, uh, figure things out? Mm. That's critical because if you're so rigid, especially in today's world, mm. you you're you're out already. There's yeah. no way for you to win if you can't roll and you can't change. You no, can't actually, pivot. I, I know it, it took us a while, but it, this kind of beautifully brought us to what you're doing now with with Sauka Maxiara, yeah. and which you are head of cultural culture and transformation yeah. or culture I mean, culture transformation okay. and employee engagement. Okay, so 
if you don't mind me saying, I think uh, especially in the past maybe five to ten years, yeah, ten years is pushing it like maybe five to ten years. Um, with with all this idea of the startups, uh, this you know our obsession with startups and all that, this word culture has been thrown around yes. a lot, especially from a from a working environment like right this uh, office culture, work culture, and all that. And to a certain extent, I think a lot of people also misuse the word just to sound a little bit hip, right? right. So to, I think you are probably one of the more qualified people to kind of talk about it in in the sense that. Um, Without it's without just using um, what do you call uh, just throwing off all the hype words you know, and trying to like yeah you know uh, you know we're a wonderful company we we appreciate employee culture without actually understanding what that means right so from from your point of view if if we are looking at it uh, say not just at Selcom Axiara but what is your general view of of when you say working culture. Well, you know, the fact that I got into Cellcom, I thought, was a testament to the culture that they're trying to build. Okay. You know, because my CV is not typical. Lah. Okay. And number one, I never had transformation or culture in any of my job positions previously. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I've had years, I have gaps in my CV that, you know, bats can fly through. Things that <laughs> I went off and did my own thing and, okay. you know, all of this stuff. So, to, to enter into a... a organization like Cellcom, mm. uh, usually you need a pristine CV, right? You need mm. to go from one mm. job to another. You show progress. You show that you've done this. You've proven this and that. Mm. So I was a, a risky bet for them, okay. I, I would say, uh, because I did not fit the typical mode of somebody mm. senior that they're supposed to hire right. for a organization like them. So anyway, <clears throat> when I joined the CEO, uh, Idham said, he also had just joined. Okay. Uh, he joined in uh, late 2018. I joined 1st uh, January 2019. Okay. So he said he has visions of where he wants to bring and a startup came mm. up. Mm. You know, at that time, Cellcom was 31 years old. Okay. And he said we need to act more like a startup mm. because of the situation that we're in and the industry that we're in is ever-changing, constantly mm. changing. Mm. So... Um, then there was this realization that people have uh, a, a comfortable way of working and what they want to mm. do mm. and what they've done before had achieved success. Right. Uh, about seven years ago, seven, eight years ago, Cellcom was on this trajectory. Mm. 33 continuous quarters of growth. Wow. Unheard of, right? Wow. Fantastic. This would be around under Shazali. This would be yeah about Shazali's okay. time. Yeah. yeah. So quarter on quarter growth oh, for man. thirty odd quarters. Unheard of, yeah. right? Yeah. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And if you can imagine people at that, well, I mean employees at that stage, they're mm -hmm. getting rewarded. Everything they do turns to gold. Yeah. You know, you're at the height. Mm -hmm. So at that point in time, is totally different. From where we are now, okay, right. I mean, we're kind of struggling. Mm. I mean, uh, there's a, competition is crazy. Mm. Uh, price war, all of this thing does yeah. not bode well okay. for people who don't want to change, right? Unless you are able to adapt and unless you can embrace this this uncertainty, mm. there's no way that we could, you know, uh, move from where we are right now. Mm. So when when I came on board he said we need somebody who is able to convey those messages 
and and talk about it authentically to the to the guys okay. because it's hard to change success mm. you know if mm. somebody's been there somebody mm. can say i was there i built this 30 year 30 quarter mm. growth mm. you know i contributed to it there i don't want to change so you know perhaps somebody like me who has started up businesses mm. who have failed miserably mm. in stuff that i've done before uh, is able to kind of tell that story mm. and uh, story is important as well i mean you mm. telling stories through this podcast and i kind of try and teach people how to convey those messages in stories that people can understand and relate to mm. so that then they can they can see oh oh this is the change that i need to make because this is where we want to go because idham has a vision mm. and I, i'm so thankful that he also believes that you know it's people first mm. it's it's about being humane and being kind mm. to one another and respecting one another and that's the the foundation of the growth that we're going to go to so i believe uh Cellcom is in a fantastic place right mm. now even though it's tough mm. uh, if you're looking at business wise yeah it's difficult but this is where we need to be in order to grow and and succeed in the future mm. so i believe we're in a in a great place uh, we need to see this through this transformation that's that's mm. happening, uh, and we need to rally people together. So that's kind of my priorities now. So, in 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 terms of, um, if you don't mind me, just a little bit of a distraction in the sense that you mentioned the importance of of storytelling, right? And I think uh, for me, I think one of uh, I dare say like one of my advantages, right, is I somehow had this realization of being able to tell a story uh, or being or learning how to tell a story right very early on and for me i see that in almost everything that i do you know you know even if it's uh you know whether it's communicating to your family to your staff to your investors to anybody the the ability to frame anything into a story is so important and I, I try to you know you know i had a very small team and even when i talk to them and they come and present to me oh we plan to do this right and then i'm like no tell me the story right tell me you know what was it like before mm. why are you doing this how are you doing this what you expect the results to be and you know and if it goes wrong what would you do right. you know, what is our people so tell me the story right and for me it's very obvious that Everybody should be able to tell a story. But I realized that most people are not programmed that way. They see it like bits and pieces of information yeah. and they come out, you know, you know, when I studied, uh, uh, I, my BM is okay, la, but when I studied like Karangan and all, I really like the idea of, you know, they say, uh, you know, your, your opening, your EC, and mm. then your put it up, right? <laughs> and I, I, see, I see everything like that. I see everything like, oh, you got, you got, Three points to make okay that's three ec right so what's your opener what is your ec you want to give and what's your summary like your penutop right? right so any conversation i have i tend to always think so even when i say okay i want to tell you something in my mind i'm okay how do i introduce the idea what do i want to talk about it and how do i summarize it and i feel that gives you a sense of clarity right and, I, and i'm not saying it that oh this is if you want to run a business or this is if you want to make a proposal I think for anything for anyone if you want to communicate how you feel what your idea is this you know the thing they're saying about storytelling it is 
so incredibly important and I feel it's so undervalued I don't know why people don't pay enough attention to it exactly uh, and I tell you when I started getting into this more seriously I mean I, I've always like you have been the, have had that kind of ability to tell mm. stories lah. yeah uh, and one of the reasons is because my father, my late father, mm. was a storyteller. He, okay. he wrote books. He wrote. Wow. Uh, okay. I mean, if you studied uh, sastra mm. in form six, he's mm. in the textbook. He was like the. F- he's named as the f- uh, founder of this realism drama kind of uh, concept in in Malaysia. So okay. his name is uh, Professor Mustafa Kamil Yassin. Okay. Uh, his pen name is Kala Dewata. Okay. If you look that up, his most famous uh, karya, his hmm. book is called Atap Kenting Atap Rembia, okay. which is a social commentary about you know the high class and the the, hmm. the lower class. Hmm. I understand Atap. What is hmm. Genting and Rembia? Genting is a clay roof. Okay. Rembia is the grass, the kampung okay. roof. Okay. So okay. it's it. about town and kampung. Okay. Got it. Uh, so it's about class differences. Okay. So anyway, he is a master. Mm, mm. He's a master at storytelling. So I remember when I was, I think it was seven years old, standard one, mm. I entered this mm. storytelling competition mm. uh, in school. So he like gave me this master class, right? <laughs> I, was, I, I was just rolling around laughing because he was in, in the bedroom, okay. jumping on the bed, telling me this story. I'm like, I could never do that. You know, okay. that, he, you know when but, you say jumping on the bed, it's like, He's really like acting he's... it out. I mean, mm. I mean, at mm. that time, he was probably my age now, mm. right? Mm. And he was so passionate about it and I just love that about him. But I never really got into it. Mm. Um, but a few years ago, about five years ago, I was invited to give my first TED Talk, TEDx mm. Talk wow. at UTP in Perak. So then I started to kind of study this, right? I mean, mm. I'm expected to give a TEDx talk. Yeah. I better, I better yeah. know what I'm doing. Yeah. So uh, it, it really is all about telling the story. Mm. It's all about, because Chris Anderson, the guy who does mm. TED, is talking about if you can't share the emotion mm. in the story, it's not a story. It's just yeah. telling facts. Yeah. You're just giving a fact sheet. So yeah. the difference between a fact and a story is emotion. So mm. once you inject that into... Uh, whatever you're trying to say and we've been talking about emotions since mm. we started yeah. right? yeah. when we started this conversation is about how people you know project mm. uh, emotions and all that so I think we've come to a nice circle here yeah. uh, but my view right now about storytelling is just that it, mm. it's facts plus emotion and if you mm. don't inject that emotion somehow people are going to forget it and you rightfully said that people are not programmed to tell those stories. However, we are hardwired to listen to stories. Mm. People crave stories because mm. they that structure is like ingrained in our brain, right? Yeah. We, yeah, we are yeah, hardwired yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. we want to know what, like you said, what's the pembukaan, what's the opening. Mm. And then as soon as you tell that, people are already thinking about, okay, mm. what's the first two, three points? Yeah. And as soon as you tell them the points, they want to come to that nice mm. uh, conclusion, mm. the nice ending, and they mm. want to feel satisfied. Yeah. Which is why we're so satisfied, unsatisfied <laughs> when somebody doesn't, there's no ending to your story. You know, Give no, me the, the only thing ending. I would add on when I, when I got into uh, sort of the working world with you know, startups and all that is I just added at the end, next steps. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. you need to summarize and then what are you going to do now? That's exactly. it. That's the next step. People steps. want to know, right? What you <laughs> yeah. want to do. But when you tell a story, the next steps becomes 
there's hope for the future mm. there's you know mm. there's a light at the end of the tunnel yeah. there's something bigger that we can achieve yeah. so those kind of things is what people don't typically do and mm. what we're doing in Southcom now is actually we're taking the top 100 leaders mm. in our organization mm. and we are training them on storytelling all 100 wow. so we're going to go through this entire process of how a story starts what what you need what, to what tell it what is the framework you are using or are you just You're making it up as you go. No, we actually there? have a uh, a trainer that mm. has proposed this entire process that okay. he goes through, uh, and it's broken up into four different sessions. Uh, and of course, there's there's we have this virtual academy in mm. Salcom that has all of the resources at, at our fingertips. So we it's you know we can access it anytime. Mm. But and there's these four checkpoints that we go through. We haven't started it yet. Okay, We're about to start uh, on. Basically, how to tell stories. So, mm. we understood that it was so important that we want all of our leaders to have this ability, to have the skill. So, we see that there is a skills gap, right? There mm. is a competency gap that people are not able to do it But naturally. People don't. Am I right to assume that people don't even realize that it is a skill that they need? Yeah. So, I'm glad that in our organization. Mm. It, There is already that realization, and mm. we've already launched it, and we're mm. already going to. Uh, we actually last year started this thing called Speak at Cellcom, mm. where we allowed people to take the stage mm. and, and share and, and, and share. Okay, so uh, you, we were talking about yeah uh, storytelling, storytelling for, the for our leaders. Yeah, so <laughs> definitely there's a there's this there's a gap where people are not they don't realize that. They think they can just spew out facts mm, and, mm, and figures, mm. and people uh, will be interested. <laughs> and they kind of say, "Why don't people remember what I'm saying? Yeah. Why, why aren't they taking action? Why don't they listen?" So it's not about not listening. It's that whatever you said, it doesn't make sense to me or doesn't uh, engage mm, my mm. senses. Yeah. So it just goes away. We are in this world where there's so much information and there's so many distractions, yeah. right? So and unless we we attach an emotion to information, precisely, it's very hard to to kind of retain it lah. It's right? almost impossible because there's just so many things going on at once. And you know this this I've always heard this uh, from people right is if if you are a, a, a if you're a storyteller, right? They almost always discount you as a, oh he can talk lah, right? Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh of course he can present lah. Oh, do you believe check up? Do you believe check up? Ask him to present, right? Exactly. And they kind of dismiss it not as a skill. They mm. just see it as oh he's not shy. Oh you know it And or you're born with it, uh, so it's not something that you build or yes. And, develop. and you know, in my case at least, right? It was something that a lecturer in college told me and told me to, you know, hey, you know, you you can talk and all that. You got to build this public speaking thing, and it was an active decision, you know, exactly. that I had to make. But then even now, when I talk to people, people are like, oh yeah, okay, Ija can lah, uh, he can public speaking, no problem, no lah. problem. Uh, <laughs> so they, you know, so. I I do feel like you know if you are saying you're getting the top hundred people in the organization to truly understand the art of storytelling and to in a way master it, right? I think that's super important. That is that that you know that's super duper important. Yeah. I think this will have personally. I think this will have more impact than any other. You know, you can train people technical stuff. 
mm. and you can say this is how you save money this is how you're going to you know improve customer service whatever right. and we can and all of that is ongoing anyway we're mm. doing all of these changes but i think just making sure that our leaders have the ability to convey these messages mm. to their people in mm. a more effective way i mm. think this when we look back at it a few years later we will say this is what changed our company this mm. is what turned us into this different animal this different organization and you know uh, an organization as big as Cellcom right Cellcom Axiara um, comes with its own set of challenges lah, right I, I give you a simple example when I was running a, a small startup uh, we tried to do a lot of uh, people culture type of steps right you know they say oh don't wait until you make it start yeah. early blah blah and all that and I realized that a lot of the things that we did did not really work because it is difficult to get to build a culture out of three, four people, right? And because also there's there's no gang, like everybody feels kind of alone. Mm -hmm. They have not found their place in the organization, right? So unless the three, four people are very strong characters, it's very hard to... I felt that it's very hard to get it off, right? So in my mind, I always thought that, oh, it would have been nicer if you were a bigger organization, that it'll be easier to get a buy-in and you know once there's so-called positive peer pressure mm. for the culture it's easier for anybody joining in to come and be part of the culture and grow the culture right but also at the same time I realize it's a double-edged knife lah, because when the organization is so big trying to transform a culture is mission impossible <laughs> it's right tough, <laughs> so what does in the way you see it what does uh not say what like how do you think uh transformation of a, an organization's culture in a in a practical way la, right mm. is it always just going to be top down or is it middle down is it will there ever be a bottom up approach i don't know but how does that well they say if you don't manage the culture the culture will manage you mm. right because the culture is not something uh, that you can manufacture mm. culture is a result of everything that people go through so we're mm. talking about employee experience now right it's mm. not just about uh, how to engage them how satisfied your employees are it's right. about the entire experience of them being an employee mm. from the time they wake up till the entire life right mm. as an employee mm. so that entire experience is what's going to change uh, the culture. Hmm. So I'll give you an example. When you're saying a small organization, Yim was small. We had hmm. like uh, at the most 60 people at one time. Hmm. Uh, but in our organization, about 40 people. Lah. Okay. So we had a very um, casual dress code, right? Okay. Because we we're going out into the kampung and all that. Everybody wears jeans and t shirts. Hmm. Kind of start up P. Hmm. So trying to go against the grain, what I instituted was formal Fridays mm. so everybody has formal <laughs> Got a reason all to dress week, up. <laughs> right and then Friday people dress down mm. typically mm. but we say we are dressed down every day so mm. let's dress up on Fridays mm. so we had suits on gowns everything <laughs> the whole works uh, and we had photo shoots everything on Friday so it was a great idea that brought everyone closer together and mm. it was a fun conversation point right. for everyone else as well so when I joined Cellcom um, in January I posted on uh, our, we had our internal mm. social media thing called yeah. Workplace right? it's Facebook for, for office mm. so I said you know since we dress down every day here mm. so I wanted to take a page from my old book lah. Mm -hmm. I said let's do formal Fridays right mm. 
and it was one of the most uh, engaged posts mm. ever mm. hundreds thousands of, of comments right? right and i said okay let's do a poll nobody wanted it <laughs> nobody wanted it so i said whatever lah you guys i'm gonna wear a suit okay. on friday okay every friday i'm gonna wear a suit and tie mm. so for for 2019 40 weeks right? 40 fridays mm. i wore a suit okay and this year i continued doing so until mco lah mm, mm, mm. so and then i kind of relaxed a bit uh, i wore a suit without a tie mm. so a suit a proper suit and a, and a nice dress shirt mm. uh, to work on mm. fridays mm. every friday mm. without fail mm. Till today, I have zero followers. Nobody wanted mm, anything to do with it. Okay. Nobody. So you can't force people to do stuff, mm. right? But at least they say this guy mm. is consistent, <laughs> hard-headed. <Okay. laughs> the gale, but wh you know? Why do you why do you think that? So is it because they did they have a formal culture before? They did uh, before I joined. Uh, it was interesting because everybody wore suit and tie to work. Okay. Every day, right? Okay. Every day, they didn't. They did not even have uh, for uh, dress down Fridays. Mm, mm. Every day there was mm, uh, company tie, blue silk right. tie. Uh, and one day, a new at that time it was wasn't present. Past CEO, Imam Bot had a town hall. Right. So he was talking about interestingly enough startup culture and all mm. this. We need to you know act fast yeah. and all of this. So one young man. He's still working in Cellcom today. And we, all of us need to thank him for this. His name is Nabil. Mm. At that time, he was a protege or a trainee. Mm. A trainee uh, of Cellcom. And he puts his hands up and he goes, Mr. CEO, you're mm. talking about all of this. Yet we're dressed in shirts and ties right now and mm. suits. Mm. Doesn't convey what you just said. Mm. So the CEO made the decision on the spot. We mm. said that was a Friday. He said, okay, on Monday, all of us come in jeans and t-shirts. So from that day on, Wow, we are benefiting from uh, from that decision and that brave young man mm. uh, who put up his hand. Interestingly enough, when I just joined Cellcom, he's part of HR as well, and mm. I report to the chief HR officer. Mm. And there's this WhatsApp group, and he says, "I can't believe Azif joined mm. when I was a student. Mm. <laughs> I visited him. That's how young he is." <laughs> And he has this newspaper clipping of him and a group of kids and me as the COO of him uh, there. So he said, full circle, lah, bro. I said, this one, incredible. You cannot script it. Lah. Man. So he's the guy. How, okay, in, in terms of um, transformation, right? Because I think it's, it's, a, it's also one of those overused uh, terms, right? How do you measure for yourself not as not your KPI for HNL but how do you measure transformation what would what would a good I will discount 2020 what will a good 2021 look like you know more and more because of course there's all of these formal measures like employee mm. engagement scores and yeah, indexes yeah. and all of this honestly I, I we can't trust that Hundred mm. percent. Yeah. At the end of the day, the proof is in the pudding, right? Mm. If the culture supports the business, the business will thrive. Mm. So I know I'm, I'm kind of shooting myself in the foot here, but <laughs> because I don't have hard KPIs <laughs> like the rest of the chiefs, mm. uh, but ultimately the proof of a good culture is your business performance. So if you mm. do not, if you're not profitable, if you don't bring in the numbers mm. something must be wrong somewhere and culture has to have a, 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 a responsibility to you know that. I would 
I, I can back up your statement, right? In, in a sense, in a very small way, uh, because we had no clue when we were uh, in, a, in, in, the, in my startup, when we were trying to do this people and culture, what we did was we looked at like Google and mm, all these people mm. and then we, we had this whole um, objectives and key results, OKRs that Google right. uh, kind of champions. Lah. And we were kind of using that framework to, to kind of like make sure everybody's engaged with what they're mm. doing, understanding the meaning behind what they're doing. So the OKRs are supposed to enable every person to kind of set your own targets right. and kind of motivate yourself, right? To kind of set the tone of instead of top-down, it's more like bottom-up, right? And what we realized uh, along with this, we did like, oh, Culture Fridays where we, we stop work at 4.30, have maybe pizza right. together the team, we, we share openly, maybe somebody wants to do a presentation. Nothing to do with work, like, more about us, right? And when we started doing those things, the intention was to kind of build this culture of sharing and all that. What it ended up being was people trying to just game the system, right? The people mm. like, oh, we got to do this Friday one. Uh, who's going to present? Hey, you present. Uh. Oh, I don't have, Hey, what to order? Uh? What, what is it? So yeah. suddenly the issue became, uh, how are we going to host this? What are you going to order? Right. Who's going to present? Okay, you present uh, this one. I don't want to do that. And suddenly they were just gaming it to, you know, the checklist of, oh yeah, yeah we did a culture Friday. get it done. Yeah, right. somebody did a presentation. So it, it was not authentic. It was not genuine. And once we tried to track people with from a metrics point of view, right, people were just gaming it. Yeah. And and I imagine if you were to put something like that, you know, if, if you're like, oh, can you have checklists to see yeah, how this goes? That's people game part. it. La. <laughs> For sure. For right? sure. That's a, that's a great point because uh, we have, last year we have this concept called cross-functional teams, CFTs. Mm. So outside of your BAU, whatever you're doing on your job, you can sign up to join one of these teams. We had 26, I think, last year. Mm. Uh, and all of them were about how to improve Cellcom as an organization. Okay. So mm. it's about customer service or whatever. One of the tribes, we call them tribes, is culture. Okay. And I was appointed as the tribe master. Mm. So as a tribe master, people sign up voluntarily, right? Mm. From all over the organization. We mm. were the biggest okay. tribe. We had 120 people in this mm. tribe. So even though in my BAU, I have very few people reporting to me, mm. but in this CFT, I had 100 over people reporting to me. So people from any department any across department. the organization yeah, across can the country, have really. input on and culture. We meet, no, we actually put it in the KPIs. So they have 40% of their KPIs for the year 2019 mm. was based on their performance in this tribe. Mm. So we actually institutionalized it. So mm. uh, again, I had a tribe of 100 over people mm. and we had things that, I mean, it was very agile based. Mm. So mm. once a week, we would meet and we would decide on the sprint for the next mm. two weeks. Mm. What are we going to build? Mm. How are we going to measure it? And how are we going to test it? So we did so many things over 2019 mm. because people were motivated. Number one, we had a very fun team. Mm. And we had, we, we, we organized a lot of cool stuff, right? Mm. On runs, songs, sing-alongs, whatever, movie mm. screenings, uh, talks and all that came about from there just to make sure that life at Cellcom was vibrant it's fun and it's engaging mm. so the assumption is if you are engaged and you're having fun and you are being valued you will perform better as an employee yeah so it make, it's a win-win right mm. the company invests to make sure that your life in the company is, is good mm. it's fun it's engaging 
and you will then perform better for the company. So interestingly, we had to have a balance lah. There had to be KPIs mm. because or not, how are you gonna? Yeah, <laughs> is this all fun lah? Yeah, it's, it's all fun. Uh, yeah. Nobody's gonna do anything or, or or do anything measurable. Mm. Yeah. And because forty percent of their KPIs was based on that, we had mm. to get serious, right? We had mm. to have these conversations about what are you doing. Mm. Uh, but because it was agile based, I think this is the key. Because in agile, we had daily stand ups. Okay. Right, and and we broke everybody into squads. Even though it was hundred odd of us, mm. each squad only had like five, six, seven people, mm. and they were all self-organized. There's mm. no designated leader. Mm. Everybody has to report what they're doing, and that kind of peer pressure really puts, uh, you know, really gets people moving because mm. you have to stand up there every single day and say, mm. "This is what I'm I've done yesterday. This is what I'm going to do today. Mm. These are my goals for the week." Mm. And you basically just report to each other, mm. right? And we felt that was an excellent experiment for the organization, and we're 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 moving agile way of working into a larger portion of the organization. Mm. There's no longer this CFT where it's only forty percent. Mm. Now everything is you know th- there's no split anymore. So mm. if you're put in one of these agile teams, you are expected to perform, and that's how you're going to be measured. So who drives this 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 framework like you know agile and you know it's, it's almost like a scrum methodology right yeah, where you have stand up meetings and all yeah. that right who 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 puts all this together well, there's who? a digital team uh, mm. that we have that's led by the chief digital officer okay. so it's very high level sponsorship lah okay uh, and the digital team is very cool they have weekly um town halls okay But as you imagine yeah, you know yeah. even a small company like you found yeah, it difficult yeah, to yeah, sustain yeah, that yeah. but they're doing that on a weekly basis and they have awards and they have mm. uh, on a weekly basis mm. they 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 vote for the best performing team and they have fun with it they have games they dress up and they come mm. so that's basically when you look at demographics that's the youngest Uh, in terms of age, and mm. in terms of tenure in Salcom, this is the youngest team. So the intention was for this group to kind of uh, infuse the whole organization with this new digital way of working, which mm. I think is is a success. Uh, you know, it's it, it's not overnight. Mm. We have many people in the organization that have been twenty years with us, thirty yeah. years with us, mm. uh, and you know, nothing wrong with that. Mm. It's just that uh, you know to to refresh an organization. It's mm. not just it's not they, as simple as just bringing in new people. Right? Mm. You have to refresh the minds. You have to refresh the way. No, this this work reminds me that. of I have, I read a book a while back. Um, it's by the CEO of IBM who mm-hmm. wrote about even elephants can dance, uh-huh, yeah. right? And the fact how an organization like IBM. Huge, who yeah. is you know you can call like a dinosaur lah, uh, yeah, yeah. had to pivot in, right. in the most massive of ways, and when you say like you know people have been in the organization for 20 years and 30 years mm. where, you know where the assistant probably has assistants right <laughs> in the sense that there's this bureaucracy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. these little bureaucracies yep. built up and they have these little Napoleons across the organization. Yep. Uh, I can only imagine it is not always bad. It it, it is not always bad, but in in most cases. You're 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 used to a certain habit, a way of doing things that might not be what the organization needs to move, yeah. especially if it's moving in a different direction, lah. Uh, what we've done over the past few years, uh, before my time even, was kind of dismantle a lot of those said dinosaur mm. era kind mm. of things. 
we are a very flat organization. Mm. So before we had like 15 levels or whatever. Mm. Now there's, Actually, there's no it, titles. One of the things, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but I think we have been going on for a while. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. I know you have to run soon yeah. as well. But one of the things that I wanted to get your thoughts on, which I think is also, I will, I will put a caveat, this is a very sensitive issue, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it is an issue that we somehow need to talk about, right? And even when I try to bring this up with other people, it's you find yourself dancing around, right? And I think the when it comes to, you mentioned this now, especially the youth, the young people now in the workforce, right? Um, there, there's this, okay, la, there's this whole sentiment about, oh, millennials and how they don't, you know, they don't appreciate their job and all that. But there's also an underlying current where there seems to be stereotypes even, dare I say, between the races, right? Uh, you know, there's a stereotype of what a, a Malay employee is and there's a stereotype of what a Chinese employee is and there's a stereotype of what an Indian employee is, right? And when I first hear these things, it's easy to dismiss, ah, these people just being discriminatory, like being racist mm-hmm. like, and all that. And for me, I found it very worrying was when I heard from a friend who works in a um, placement company, a HR company, one of the big ones, where they are just doing outsourced HR placement, right? Where companies give them mandates mm. where for the same role, they're willing to pay more for a Chinese candidate, right? And those kind of practice, the skill set all same, huh? and those kind of practices I found very scary, right? Why are we willing to pay more to someone based purely on the race, right? And this person was talking to me they are Indian, right? But even they, they were telling me that they have very negative stereotypes mm. for Indians. <laughs> because, you know, and they come up with all this, oh, you know, they, they, they set, uh, they're supposed to start work and they don't turn up, mm. they just disappear. So there's all these stereotypes attached to, you know, race, right? And for me, the scary part is they can even tell me that, oh, you know, uh, when you offer a job to a Chinese candidate, they will think about it because they got so many options. Mm. You know, and it's not the same for the rest, right? And I think it's easy to just say, oh, I, I personally don't think the races are different in, in terms of their output. But there is definitely something that's different in terms of, I don't know whether it's a mindset or it, it's a way they approach work. There's something different that is causing such stereotypes, which I think still exist to this day. I I don't think it is something that's been solved. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, people behave the way they are raised. Mm. Right? Mm. Mm. Uh, I'm a Malay. Mm. Uh, I grew up a portion of my young life in the States. Mm. So, I'm probably more American than Malay. (laughs) But my, oh, today is a really in terms of controversial language, day for you, right? <laughs> in terms of language, uh, I'm English or American English or Midwestern American English is mm. my first language because mm. I first started to speak when I was three about there. Mm. So from three to seven, I grew up in the States. So that was okay. my first language. Then I moved back to Malaysia and my dad taught at USM. So mm. Penang. Mm. So Penang, Northern Malay is my second language, right? Okay. So Bahasa Melayu Baku ni is way distant <laughs> third lah. <laughs> so uh, in that sense, sometimes I don't relate 
I never watched uh, Piramli movies growing up. Mm. All of my friends, regardless of race, uh, mm. will quote mm. lines from Piramli movies. Mm. I have no idea what what it's about. <laughs> I, I, it's not the reference for me. Right. I, I can't right. get it. So people will behave the way they, the references that they have mm. growing up. Mm. Uh, and I, it, me, it's very clear that. There's no racial differences, lah. Maybe mm. it's just because of my my family, right? My brother mm. married a German. Mm. Uh, my sister now lives in BC. Mm. I have a nephew living in New York City. Mm. So we're a very global family, mm. and we kind of don't have those kind of racial assumptions, lah, mm. or presumptions. Mm. Uh, and as an organization, for sure, we are very. We have a very strong diversity policy. Mm. We're very careful about. Anything related to that, so yeah. we're very, very aware, and we make conscious decisions mm. to kind of break those things down. Mm. I talk, to, although we are predominantly Malay organization, I mm. say in terms of employees, right? Uh, but basically, basically mirrors the Malaysian yeah. population, lah. But no, actually, yeah. when when somebody tells me any company or any government agency is majority Malay, I'm like. Yeah, we are Malaysian. That is the population breakdown, ma. Yeah. If the population of the country majority sixty seventy percent is yeah. Malays, yeah. you would expect that in every company. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I have to say that we have a very strong representation of. Well, not strong. I would say it mirrors the okay. Malaysian population. Right. So we have many Chinese. We have many Indians. We have mm. many. We have a few expats. Not that many anymore. Mm. Uh, and many Malays. Right. So I have. In my two years in Salcom, I haven't seen any sort of racial. Mm. No, but I, I, I am issues. not. I am not saying that the workplace has racial issues, right? I think the maybe what what I'm asking you is not so much as your capacity as somebody who works in Salcom. Mm. Uh, maybe with given your experience over the years, you know, and when you see what I'm trying to get at is why do people have or hold on to these yeah. stereotypes, right? That is what troubles me because, you know, if just say today I hire somebody and they are terrible, right? Why do I attach? Oh, he's you know Race. Chinese, mm. Malay, Indian, and he's terrible. So, or oh, all Indians, instead of understanding that this human being was not good at his job, yeah. I need to look for another human being, yeah. right? I think we as a society need to address it. I mm. mean, I think you're very courageous in raising it. Uh, I think we need to have those conversations. Mm. Uh, I think the United States is the way they are because mm. they don't talk about it. Mm. They don't openly mm. talk about slavery. Mm. They don't openly talk about how repressed the the blacks are mm. in their society. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's on yeah. the fringe. Yeah, and because those conversations don't happen, mm. it never gets solved. Yeah, uh, as opposed to, for example, in South Africa, they had it really. They had worse, mm. right? Mm. They were apathetic. Mm. They had it really yeah. bad. But they had this conversation immediately after this reconciliation mm. committee mm. that talked about race and openly talked about in the society. Mm. So now they they're over it. Yeah. So in one two generations, as opposed to five hundred years in the states, mm. right? And they still can't get over it. But I think Malaysia needs to have this conversation as well. Mm. We need to talk about it. Why? Why are you? Why do you think Chinese do this? Mm. Why do you say Malay is like this? Yeah. Um, because it's not religion based mm. no religion preaches racism yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's something that is learned and taught to us I honestly believe 
that it was something that had uh, ulterior motives. Mm. I think that uh, the colonials, when they came in, mm. uh, forced racism. Right. They put Chinese in the mm. cities and they put Indians control, in the plantations. Yeah. Mm. And in order to control it, they mm. had to split us up. Mm. They had to put pit us against each mm. other. It's, yeah. not, it's not natural. Yeah. It's not natural for a people Unity to is the people. enemy of colonialism la. Exactly So <laughs> they played that game And mm. we're sucked into it After hundreds of years yeah. uh, And it's kind of programmed into us la. Yeah. So we need to deprogram that And the only way to deprogram that Is conversations And mm. by getting the truth out Yeah You know my, my very simplistic and I, and, I will, and I will admit to you I have a very simplistic way of looking at things right That even when it comes to, and, and politics is not my favorite subject, but even when you will look at a country as a whole, for me, is the way I always think is, why do we have, why do we have to have race-based parties? Mm. In, in a sense, hear me out, in a sense that if, if the focus of our leaders and governments was, you know, we want to help the B40, no matter what, right? We want to help B40, whether you are, you know, Indian, Chinese, Malay, we want to help the B40, right? By the nature of our, you know, our cultural mix, right? The majority of the country is Malay, right? So if you're helping everybody, the majority of the people you're helping are the Malay, right? But I always don't understand why do we, why is this not an obvious fact? In the sense that why do we feel that that if we help everybody, why do we have this feeling that oh the Indians will lose or the Chinese will lose or the Malays will lose? You know, I, I always struggle with it. I don't know whether it is, it's just politicians doing their thing. I, mm. I don't know. But why don't we have this idea of, hey man, if we help everybody, everybody's going to be better. Yeah. yeah, you know. And and I don't know whether that is that, that, that bottom-up thinking where people have these stereotypes against, uh, I, I, I can easily say Indians, people definitely have a stereotype for Indians. But like you mentioned, right? I think one of the key things is how you're brought up, yep. right? Because even when you talk about Chinese, Indian, Malay, and all the other races and whatnot, is there's the the you know whether your family is middle class, you know, or your family is below the poverty line, there's a difference in the way you're brought up. So actually, the the, the Chinese, Indian, and Malay they have who are in middle class are probably have more in common with each other than they have with even though you're a Chinese but you're in the poverty line, right? But we don't seem to talk about it. Somehow we mm. don't talk about, we don't class separate. Differences, yeah, yeah, we don't separate in terms of class, but we are separating in terms of race. Yeah, and I find that very, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know whether that's the. I have the same thinking. I, I've always thought that we shouldn't have race-based uh, parties. Mm. Uh, but again, I think the assumption is goodness of mankind, right? Yeah. If, if everybody has that, yeah, it will be fine. Yeah. The thing is. There's always people with different motives, ulterior mm. motives. Mm. Mm. Uh, mm. If it was up to, you know, compared to Scandinavian countries, for example, mm. Scandinavia has the, the highest happiness index. Mm. It has mm. the highest satisfaction. It probably also has the highest tax rates. Mm. Mm. Uh, but mm. because yeah. people are willing to pay mm. almost 50% of their salary to the government, because mm. the government takes care of them. Yeah. They have the highest reserves. They can survive. Norway can survive without oil for the next hundred years. Yeah, they have enough yeah. money. They are supposed the because they are they are. I think their sovereign fund 
is doing so well that exactly. everybody's a millionaire, right? I think every Norwegian is technically so a millionaire. They have no complaints, you know. I mean, they pay taxes through their noses, lah. Yeah. People hate that, but they're taken care of. Healthcare yeah. is free, uh, free university up to PhD is free. You mm. don't have to, you know, you don't have to deal with those things because they have, I think, politicians mm. that uh, are accountable. But do you feel, I mean, to be to be fair, right? I do feel this part of the world we have a bigger challenge because especially the Scandinavian countries they don't deal with the 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 I think the cultural diversity that we deal yeah, with yeah the kind of you know they are mainly white there's a lot of immigrants and all yeah. that but there seems to be the minority so in that sense they they look at themselves as one people right? right whereas here we we tend to divide right. well yeah you're right because of that the history lah uh, and like I was alluding to our history is complex mm. right mm. and if you want to talk about who was here first and mm. all of that mm. i'm very clear that my family came from indonesia mm. <laughs> only five four generations ago five generations ago. um and my dad actually took me to our homeland mm. in sumatra well wow. uh, as i finished studying in the states i was mm. old at that time he said let's go back kampung right he said, okay, you go back kampung all the time. So in Negeri <laughs> no, 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 it's a real kampung. So we took a, a ferry from Malacca to Dumai on, mm. in Indonesia. And from Dumai, took like a 15-hour bus ride through the ravines and cliffs. Wow. Then from, from there uh, to, the, to the real kampung. This right. is where our... Hey, sorry, from. I think the mic... Okay. okay. Yeah. So this is where our people are from. Mm. So so to me it's clear I've only been here a few generations, probably mm. one or two generations more than mm. your wife's family. Yeah. Maybe you can. Yeah. But the complexity arises where we had a Malay uh dynasty. We had a mm. Malay sultanate. Mm. It was a Malay country, mm. right? Mm. And then artificially people were brought in mm. by the Mat Saleh. Yeah. So yeah. it becomes complex, you know, yeah. because this is not, it's only a hundred odd years ago. Yeah. Uh, no, actually somebody, uh, a friend of mine brought up this idea where they are drawing parallels between the US, mm. you know, where, you know, the, 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 the whites mm. and the blacks in the US and here where it's the Malays and the non-Malays, yeah. right? Then I was telling them that the, the Malays never brought us as slaves. Yeah. Right? The Malays never ruled mm -mm. the Chinese and the Indians, right? In fact, if anything, all three of us were in the same boat with the colonials. But the yep. colonials are the one that was exploiting yeah, the land exactly. and the people. Exactly. So, why we cannot have the same, uh, the same kind of uh, what do you call it? We we can't look at, uh, you know, the Malays the way the blacks look at the whites because we were never enslaved, right? Sure. And people don't really think about that. No, right? They, they kind of just draw yeah. that same parallel as in, oh, now the uh, the, the Malay party is in control, right? But I'm like, yeah, but, you know, majority in the country is Malays, right? So but the thing is, wh why we're not having this sort of conversation, I think, generally among everyone in the Kopitiams is mm. that uh, for the Malays, for the Malay parties, lah, mm. for mm. them to remain in power, their message is Ketuanan Melayu, which mm. means Malay supremacy, mm. which mm. I... <laughs> it's hard for me to... I mean, as a religious man, mm. 
it's against my religion basically because mm. the prophet said no arab is better than a non arab mm. no non arab is better than an arab yeah. no white man is better than a black man no black man is better than a white man mm. except for your piety towards god yeah. but, so to me i cannot accept that just because i'm a malay mm. i have to be superior to you or yeah. to somebody else yeah. but the political parties play that up and you can say because we had a sultanate mm. because our sultan ruled this land mm. and we have to continuously well you know the the idea is this was our land yeah and now we're sharing with two yeah. other main races yeah uh, and they want equality mm. so the argument is how tak boleh equal lah mm. this is my land you know mm. you came as so because of that as long as there's people like that espousing these kind mm. of views we're going to have trouble no i can understand i can understand the the fear that they propagate in the sense that they they kind of you know i imagine if i was in that shoe right if to say if i'm malay and i was indoctrinated uh, people are saying that hey you know if you make it equal they will habislah they will take away your culture mm. they'll take mm. away your religion and you have no control so what what i actually want is i want my way of life like i like right. my way of life right. i like my, my you know my culture my religion and i don't want that to be taken away right and i think I f- I believe lah. Most people are in that boat in the sense that the fear is if we become equal, suddenly the, you know the Hindus or the Christians and all will start you know imposing mm. on us, mm. which I will accept. Which is also a scary thought for people. True, it's a scary thought True. to think that suddenly like oh you, whatever you believe you can be negated by somebody else. True, and I think that's maybe where the responsibility of our leaders is to say like. Because for me, I always go back to if we help everybody, we all have a better life, ma. Instead of trying to always divide. Yes, for sure, for sure. But again, you know, there's this fear because uh, history has proven that people with ulterior motives mm, mm. actually have major influence mm. and can change you know whole races or yeah. whole people's uh, lives yeah. and they kept uh, one of the things i just read about was in cambodia and i was in cambodia mm. with my son a couple mm. of years ago uh, and they actually also had a muslim majority sultanate mm. there mm. Uh, but it was the the and they say pendatang lah mm. people who came mm. who were not from the land yeah. from another race mm. imposed their will and took over the economy and mm. suddenly the 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 people of the land uh, who were Muslim mm. is now a, a small minority who are being you know mm. oppressed. Actually, you you are exactly right because if we go through history and we look at. Like example, the 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 Cambodian. Yeah. When we were there, when listening to the stories, ah, huh, you know, when when the Hindus came, out, suddenly they they convert, they destroy everything, and suddenly is rebranded as right. a new religion, right? And if somebody else takes over, you know, they so take, it's scary. So yeah. it is legitimate fear among yeah. people, and of course, people are worried about. China's mm. expansion, for example, mm. China's mm. dominance, and they and they how they're throwing their money around and buying stuff. No, that and also that the if I'm not mistaken, they are the communists. Uh, I don't want to say communists since it's such a negative word, right? Mm. But they are uh, they the communist party does not recognize religion, right? Yeah, if you another, believe in the communist party, that's another scary thing. That means you are an atheist, like by default, you cannot believe in a religion right, if you believe right, in the communist right. party, right? 
And that is scary because most people have some kind of faith yeah. in some kind of religion. Of course. Right? So to tell them that suddenly you see this superpower coming in and taking over the world and especially with if US continues to behave like this, I think China is just going to be more powerful. Yeah. You're right. They are, so it's scary. It's hmm. scary for people. Actually, there are legitimate reasons. Yeah, there's legitimate. I mean, hmm. the way uh, China is oppressing the Uyghurs, right? Hmm. Uh, they basically internment camp for hmm. the entire race. Hmm. And total 100% denial. <laughs> Nobody can do anything about it. 100% denial. Myanmar. Nobel Peace Prize winner mm. who's mm. oppressing an entire race. Genocide mm. is happening under mm. her watch and mm. she's not doing anything and she's a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Of mm. course, people will use this to stoke fear here in Malaysia. We're, we're in paradise, man. This mm. is... I agree. This is a beautiful country yeah. with beautiful people but mm. some people will use these things mm. to scare, fear-mongering and again, our history shows that people in power don't have our best interests at heart. That's the, that's the worrying thing. If we trust them to, to mm. do the best for us, then mm. okay lah. But when, as soon as we give trust, mm. then they break the trust. Mm. And then in Malaysia, you can get away with it. And people will forget <laughs> it after a few years. You still see the same names that were, you know, arrested. Yeah. You're yeah. still the same. They have power. And you're like, come on, something has to so, change. Okay, so I think to, I know you have to run. So we wrap yeah. it up. Uh, I think uh, from talking to you I know we, we, we kind of went here there everywhere <laughs> um, to end at a positive note right how or what do you think as you said um, it starts at home right you know how, how we what do you think is the value that we should you know uh, we should aspire to teach our kids or even ourselves um, for them to be able to be uh, a better person lah. whether it's in the workplace you know whether as, as a Malaysian what do you think now that you have married <laughs> one off no um, I truly believe that if you were if you want to succeed in any field mm. right uh, you need to be a good person first mm. I think that's simplistically saying mm. Uh, and this came about many, many years ago, actually, <laughs> through uh, MLMs, okay, okay. multi-level okay. marketing, right? Mm, mm, so you're supposed mm. to convince people right. uh, about what you do. And my son, he's 20 years old. He recently signed up for one. Okay. So he was kind of worried, didn't think I, I would support him. But mm. I said I had actually been in a few over mm. the last 30 years. Yeah. So um, the thing that struck me was that the, the, what they were teaching was that you need to be a good guy first mm. in your community mm. before anybody will trust you mm. and, and you have to do it authentically you can't cheat people into saying that you're a good guy and trying mm. to get business from people that mm. doesn't work yeah. according to this uh, particular company and that struck me because in my uh, neighborhood now mm. there's a guy from that company <laughs> and he is the best dude around man he's the most helpful whatever you need he's there if you're in trouble he's there mm. so I feel that uh, we need to teach our kids this if you want to mm. make an impact in any level of your life mm. first and foremost you need to be a good guy and you need to be authentic about it you, mm. you can't trick people in the long term Right? You, mm. Over time, mm. there's no way to lie about who you are. 
your mm. true personality will come out uh, and you will be judged based on that so first and foremost be a good guy help people out you know that's that's the main okay, thing I, I think that is pristine advice <laughs> a great way to end <laughs> the, a very long podcast I think you have to run right. uh, Azif thank you so much for doing this with me uh, I do have more questions but we'll have to save it for another one right, okay right. uh, good luck with your with your uh, with your upcoming event in December I look forward to it thank you and uh, I will keep up with you on LinkedIn thanks hopefully. man appreciate it <laughs> thanks right. for reaching out and inviting me it was me. a pleasure it was good to connect after so many years <laughs> exactly okay. take care man <laughs> thanks